Are you ready to take your screenwriting career to the next level? If you're a new or aspiring screenwriter who feels lost or stuck in your career, the Working Writer School is here to teach you what writing courses don't. Former student Dylan Evans said, There are a ton of writing classes out there, but this course helped me work through the stuff that I couldn't find anywhere else. I feel more prepared and more knowledgeable to take on the next phase of my writing career. Writer Nicole Bennett said, After taking this course, I have a clear framework for the mindset, productivity, networking, and financial management skills needed for longevity in this industry. And Jay Burlingham calls this course the map. This course has given me a map that I will return to again and again as I move forward in my career as a writer. Use code MMIH for 10% off from now until January 31st and go to theworkingwriter.com. That's theworking, W-E-R-K-I-N-G, writer.com to sign up today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alternate, is out now on digital, on DVD, and on Tubi. I'm Liz Manischel. I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life, and I'm currently making more, just all the time. I'm a distribution consultant who does sales, and I used to manage Sundance's Creative Distribution Initiative. This week, we welcome writer-director Yoko Okamura on the show to talk about the making of her first feature film, Unseen, as part of the Blumhouse MGM deal, how she landed the director role, and what her experience was like directing her first feature at that scale. Also, we talk a little bit about her editor, Michael Block. Just wanted to throw that in and shout out to Michael Block. (laughs) After that, we play another round of The Game. I don't know if anyone can hear It's The Game, but you say it in a dramatic way. But first, Ulrich, how are you? I'm okay. You know, my daughter's got some uh, gooey eye problems, as children do. And then, you know, it's all this weather, you know, this terrible rain that's like killing my soul. Yeah. I I don't know if I really like it raining every day forever. That's why we live in California, to not do that, to not have that. (laughs) What is this, Seattle? What's going on here? Come on. But yeah, I'm okay. I'm good. I, I wrapped up my two freelance little side gigs I was working on. So they're like completely done now which is incredible i like packed up the hard drives on one today the other hard drives are cold and sitting on my desk ready to be going back in their little boxes so that's exciting and i feel like it's the beginning of being able to write again now that like these tasks are done it's like okay writing is imminent but i mean there's also it's tax season so i have to do my taxes so it's like that is like the next thing on my plate of like you know, non-day job stuff to do. So, like, that's, like, the most important thing that I have to put first. So, yeah, it's been not not really pushing so hard on the writing stuff. Don't really have any updates on my movie, just that we have, like, another company that's interested. I, I think I probably said that last week, and so mm-hmm. they're looking it over. So, fingers crossed, we'll get uh, good news soon on that. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, still, I'm not... <laughs> I'm not feeling super confident that the movie will happen before my son is born, but maybe it will. Oh, I had this really weird feeling last week because it was like basically kind of I talked to my other producer, Jeff, and like he was like, like, yeah, dude, like what world? Like, there's no way it's going to happen before then. Like, it's like early in his mind. And he's like a total like I wouldn't call him a pessimist. He's more like he's just been doing it so long that he just knows like how hard it is to get anything going and that like you know the things do happen like things do happen quickly but it's like the likelihood of that of this being one of those times where things like just fall into place like perfectly 
is like s- small. So in his mind, he's like, yeah, dude, like ain't going to be like till December earliest earliest december is what he thinks probably 2024 that's like it in his mind is where it is and then i talked to the the writer and the other producer they're like yeah may <laughs> april it's like get out of here it's not gonna happen but like you know we'll see we'll see maybe 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 jeff will be proved wrong maybe the whole thing he he did tell me it's funny I, I'm pretty sure the the EP doesn't listen to this podcast, so like, there's no he's not like whatever, but uh, he's not like aware that I'm having another kid. But Jeff was like, just maybe don't mention that. Yeah, no need to mention that unless it comes up. And I was like, okay, all right, very old school response. I got very similar advice. I get that. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I think it doesn't really matter. It's a total moot point until there's like money on the table. And he was like, yeah, better just not to say anything. Because then that way they're not, it, it's not even a concern and like he won't be worrying about it. He won't be like thinking about it. And then it's like, it's not going to matter. Like 99% it's not going to matter in Jeff's mind. <laughs> so, you know, just like, let's just see what happens and we'll do, cross the bridge when we need to cross it, you know. That is the smarter move. But, the, but I like cannot, I don't know how to not say things. <laughs> like, I'm not a sneaky person. <laughs> like, things just, like, vomit out of me, and I can't stop them, and I don't even choose to say things. I just end up saying things that I... Yeah. Uh, so the point is that, like, I, I, don't, I don't have a censor <laughs> a lot of the times, and that sounds like a really unfun life to have to, like, closet parenthood, you know? Uh, well, I mean, I, that's a very dramatic way of looking at it. It's, it's not like I'm, you know, having weekly meetings with this person and, like, going to tea time, you know, every right, day. Right, so you're not, or, you're not always I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not speaking with him, yeah. So he's not asking me how I'm doing, and yeah. there's no check-ins, you know? It's, it's just basically, like, a little update here and there about, like, the progress of, okay. of the movie. So it's, it's not like... It's, it's not like it... It's not like it would come up in conversation if, if like, you know, I was willing to share it. It's, it's like, I'm not, yeah. it's not like I'm hiding anything. It's just like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a non point, really. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. But the, the writer on the other hand is like texting this guy all the time, which is like, I guess okay. But it's like, I feel like, dude, just like let him be, man. Cause he keeps on like sending me messages. He's like, yeah, he said this. He said that. He said, this is what's the latest. This is what's happening. Well, we should know this by then. It's like, Dude, just leave the poor man alone. Like, like when yeah. when they know something, he he will tell us. Like, you don't need to be like. You gotta have staying power in. for a project to happen, right? Like, you yeah. gotta be. I mean, like, I feel like I've been on projects where I've. Exp- I'll talk about. I'll mention that I'm attached to another project or that you know big life changes happening, and it'll freak a teammate out. But it will freak them out if they are inexperienced or do not understand how long things take, or like right. it. It kind of like creates ripples for those who are not like Jeff, like your teammate Jeff, who like understands it is the long game. Like that's the best yeah. producer to have is the long game producer. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I feel like, but then, so the thing I was trying to say was like when, when Jeff said that and he was like, yeah, don't even worry, dude, it's probably not happening. Like, don't, it's okay. You you don't need to trip. Then I was like, well, when am I ever going to make my next movie? Like internally, like, when's it going to happen? Oh God, I've got to make something before my son is born. Oh, oh. And then I was like, basically like, dude, like, like, like a, 
basically you'd have to raise the money you know b you don't really have a project you want to make like you have like a couple old site like short scripts you could make if you wanted to but it's like what's the point like you're gonna make another short film just so you can like play the whole game of like submitting it to film festivals trying to get noticed trying to get attention and then what you're gonna spend like you know whatever you spend on the movie which you don't have and then all the money that you need to spend to submit to film festivals which you don't have so it's like oh wait so you're gonna try to raise you basically raise money and then spend all this money on a short film that like you don't really have a passion to make in the first place. And it's like, right. It's, it's just, I was like, dude, just chill, just chill. You can just chill. You don't need to rush into like, it's probably better time spent to like write a feature, you know, and like really put the energy into that in this time than it is to like try to rush out. And like, like, this is the thing I always do Liz. like, I don't know, like if I've done this in our relationship, but I've done this with Timothy like twice where it's like I get like antsy trying to make the alternate and I run off and make a short film, you know, and then I get antsy <laughs> and then I make an- another short film. And it's like these it's just like it, what does it do for me? Nothing. You know, like, it does do a lot for you. I sorry. I have to disagree because I do something very similar <laughs> in that it improves your craft. And I just hear Clinton Cornwell, who <laughs> listens to this podcast, I could hear him in my head because he's like my creative coach guy and it's like every time and I understand there's a lot of diminishing returns with the financial investment but you get to be on set and you get to work and it is valuable but I I think it's I like what you're doing you're just rerouting yourself to focus on larger projects right now that's that could be a new way to frame it I don't think those other things were distractions though I think they were important for you Well, well the last short film I directed we haven't even released it yet because basically me and the director that's my co-director like we basically couldn't decide on how to best release it like we're gonna oh. we're gonna release it online and then we're like no we want to release it like through a platform then we applied to the platforms we didn't get anything back and then I was like talking to this other company that I met in Italy that it's called We Short and they like do short film distribution through like a Broku and a bunch of other channels mm-hmm. and so we were gonna sign a deal with them and then basically like right when we were about to sign the deal I like got cold feet and I was like why do I want to put this money behind a pay platform. Where mm. no one's gonna ever see it besides like maybe a few people here or there, and it's not gonna make very much money. It's not gonna get exposure. And like I was asking my co-director, I was like, "Look, like, what is the purpose? Like, what do you want to do? Like, what is your goal for the short film?" And her answer was for people to see it. It's <laughs> like, well, we shouldn't get it, it on the paywall, then should we? Yeah, no. And so then we like scrapped that whole deal. Like, felt this was like last year. We were, like we're like, fuck this, we're not doing this. And then we were, like, trying to research, like, places to release it, like, on YouTube or Vimeo or whatnot, like, different channels, you know. And then I sent her, like, a bunch of options, and then she, like, never really got back to me. And it's sort of, like, been clear now that, like, I'm the one driving this. Like, I have to be the person who, like, says, this is the company we got to go with. Like, this is the place that we have to release the the movie. And it's, like, I have not put any – I just don't have time. It's, like, where's the time? Where's the energy? Where's the time? So it's, like, okay – I mean, it would be better rather than making another short film. It's like get the other one you made out there at least. Like get okay, that that's one. That's fair. You know? <laughs> I would encourage you to do that. Yes, but I also I agree with how you're kind of assessing things. I think it's important to slow down sometimes, right? Like you have you have to kind of like capitalize on the momentum that you're given, and like if your body's like go 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 feature feature feature, like I'm like 
do that. Follow it because that's right. rare, right? But if your body and mind are like slowed down, then it's like listen to that. That's fair. I don't. I very often we fight against our instincts, and so I'm, I think it, you're just listening to your instincts right now. Yeah, I think that it's this this feature that I've been mulling over my head for over a year now, and I've written a little bit about. I've written some character descriptions. I've written an outline. I've written a couple pages of the actual script and it's like this is the thing that I really believe in that whether I make it now or in 20 years like I think this movie is going to be really great Mm -hmm. so like that's probably what I should be putting my time into and then I could also like check off the boxes of releasing this other short film and you know taking care of things that are like unfinished business you know yeah because yeah it's really important to like not let these things just evaporate into nothing you know yeah I get that I mean like I'm at a stage right now because I'm in the middle of a move and Sean just started a new job that like I I realize the importance of schedule and instability for creativity. Like I'm like, oh, I have just been in hustle mode for like weeks. And then like now I feel like, oh, maybe I could reinstitute an hour in the morning where I have an office now. Right. Mm, Like I haven't even I still like act like I'm trapped in a one bedroom. I haven't left the bedroom in the morning. The whole reason (laughs) to move was so that we could have space and like a little bit more freedom. So like right now, like my focus is stability, schedule, having a working refrigerator, having a working internet plan, having, you know, like an HVAC system that works. None of these things work right now. <laughs> and then once those things work, then then to kind of have the foresight to figure out what's next. Yeah. So it's like you have the what's next. I think I'm in the like, I still need to clear out all the, the, the adulting. I need to adult a little bit right well, now. Aren't you going to make your movie before your kid's born? Is that That's the plan. Thing? When the plan was to make, you know, like a five day shoot before the kid's born just for the opening sequence. Right. And it's still a tentative plan. But like the past week or so, I have not thought about it, you know, mm, right. and I and I don't want to think about it like the past week or so. It's been like. I need to make sure my son is okay with this major life change. I am, you know, like I'm like, we're just about 15 weeks pregnant. You know, it's like, I think it's about prioritization right now. And maybe there's a little bit of me that's like assess. Once you have a space, once you're unpacked, then take a second, take some breathing room and assess. Because I hadn't realized that I think for years I was kind of living like a nomad and kind of mm. living a, I don't know, a system of, like I was compromising a lot in my lifestyle because I wanted to stay in our neighborhood and because, you know, for whatever reason. And now we have more space. We have more freedom. We have more flexibility. What does that mean now? What does that mean creatively? Does right. it mean I want to make this movie before birth or does it mean that I actually want to take the time to make it as good as possible too? So I don't mm. know. I don't know yet. Interesting. That's that's not at all what I was expecting you to say. I know. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think that's healthy, you know, to like not rush blindly forward when maybe there's another way to spend your time, especially when you're pregnant. It's like my wife's talked about like how the last pregnancy she, you know, it was like so stressful and there was a lot of things going on. Like it didn't really feel as fun. Like we moved during her, her pregnancy, the beginning part of her pregnancy. Yeah. So it was like 
just crazy. And like, I think, you know, there's, there's something to be said to just like enjoy it and relax and like not be so Well, yeah, because this is going to be the last for us, not for you. I don't know about you, but for me, if this if this goes, this is the last one, you know, probably for us, too. Although I just heard from a a doula we talked to that she helped a 48 year old woman give birth recently. And I was like, oh, physically, it is possible. Right. Physically, it could be possible. Maybe we'll see. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, for me, it's like, no, 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 no. Like, we well, I don't will... know how I'll feel when I'm 48. That's 10, that's like 10 years from now. Like, maybe oh. I'll feel differently. <laughs> I will be tired when I'm 48, <laughs> and I will be yeah. not interested in that's doing true. this again. I'm pr- I would bet lots of good money on that. But I would also <laughs> bet lots of good money on uh, our Patreon campaign. Yes. www.patreon.com slash podcast. Please support us on the Patreon. We love getting new patrons. It does happen weekly. It is super exciting. It is how we keep the show going. We also keep the show going thanks to Jambox.io, a royalty-free music and SFX company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood-level films, working with directors like Michael Bay, Martin Scorsese, or global brands like DJI. They have customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty awesome, but without any more delay. Here's our chat with Yoko Okamura. We're here with Yoko Okamura, the director behind Unseen. Welcome to the show, Yoko. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Give us the elevator pitch for Unseen. Unseen is a colorful thriller that is about a woman who was kidnapped by her ex-boyfriend and taken to the woods, and she fights back and escapes. But in order to do so, she fights so hard that she breaks her glasses, and without her glasses, she can barely see. So in her attempt for survival, she tries to call 911, but then accidentally calls a different woman, a stranger who had accidentally called her and is connected to her. And this woman is across the country. She is a stranger and she ends up having to navigate her through the wilderness over video call and to survival. Wow. How many days did you shoot? We shot 22 days, which isn't too bad, but it, it was a very dense script with lots of beats like in every single scene yeah from the trailer lots of action it seems (laughs) which is great (laughs) what can you say about the rough budget of the movie you know what this was actually one feature that was a part of like a block of features that blumhouse did for epics which is now mgm and so they actually they don't tell me they don't tell me the budget as a director it's kind of like you know if you do an episode of tv they don't tell you the budget of it so you just kind of go in blind and you ask for things and they say no or yes (laughs) it's definitely like under I think it's around like three or five, but I actually don't know how much mine was. Wow. Nice. We had Roxanne Benjamin on the show who I think her latest feature is part of that block. Yes. Yes. And she said something very similar, which is just like she didn't have access to that kind of numbers, but it was very similar to a TV format, which is we could get into that as well. So we know you didn't write it, but what can you what can you share about like the origin of the idea or what what the writer shared with you about why they wrote the script? Yeah, um, this was originated by Sal and Brian, the two writers. And yeah, they did a great job. They just they wanted to. okay. so what Sal and Brian told me about what they wanted to do with the script is they wanted to do human jaws. Like they wanted to do somebody being, you know, pursued by an antagonist that you couldn't see, right? And then and that was kind of the nugget for them of where to like start building the story off of. Yeah, and they did a really great job of like writing something that's like very, again, like 
action heavy, like nonstop intensity. And then I I had the privilege of coming in and, you know, like collaborating with them and being able to kind of infuse more of the character specificities from my own background and like, yeah, kind of meld the two intentions together. And then how long do you spend working on the film from you being brought on to it being released? I pitched for it and was hired September 21. And I think I was off to New Orleans to prep at the end of November 21. And then I was prepping through December and then January into 22. And then we shot, we were actually shooting this time last year in February. And then we wrapped. And when we wrapped the movie, it was actually Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So that was kind of like a wrap party. It was amazing. And then, yeah, post-production for several months through that. And then now it's coming out March 7th. So Wow, that's fast. It's fast. It's quick. It's definitely like, again, like a TV schedule and TV structure more than like an independent feature. This is our a new question for us. So we're still beta testing it. If you could change one thing about the film in any way, what would it be? If I could change anything about the like the actual movie, like the the creative content of it, there isn't that much I'd change. I mean, there's certainly like different ways of opening the movie that we had, you know, we're like, oh, if we could go back, maybe we would do this, this and this to like establish the characters better. But I don't know. I really actually am quite proud of like the final product. I think if I were to change like what the movie is as far as like within the infrastructure of, you know, of the film industry, like I would love it to be a theatrical film. You know, it's a streaming film, but you know, the dream is theatrical. And I think it's actually a really fun, like movie theater movie. It's like, it's quite, you know, high action, high intensity. Yeah, but it's actually a very tight 76 minutes. So it may never have, you know, been a theatrical just because of that in itself. Oh, you could do theatrical 76. You can make that work. Cool. Let's do it. (laughs) I I really want to hear about like how the script came to you and like that whole process. Like what were your reaction? Was it was the, the script originally? And then like how you you know, did your pitch, the pitch process and like leading all the way up to getting hired? Yeah, I was brought to Blumhouse through my reps, through my manager, Randy. And I had actually pitched for a different project that they were doing before. So I was kind of already kind of in the mix with them. But when the script for Unseen came to me, yeah, I read it and I was like, okay, this is like a fun, this is this is a fun thriller. And if I could make this movie visually exciting so that, you know, you're not just staring at two people talking on screens the whole time, and I could really infuse, again, like some visual intrigue and spectacle, then this could be a really fun film. But on top of that, what really made me go like, oh, this is a movie I can really make my own and bring my personal, you know, emotional authenticity to is that at the core of the, the thriller was a, a unlikely friendship story between two women. You know, these two women who are strangers come together, you know, from very different walks of life and ultimately end up like saving each other in very different ways. So I was like, okay, two women fighting back against an abuser. That is that is a topic that, you know, is definitely under my my umbrella of themes that I'm very interested in telling stories through. So that was ultimately what made me go like, okay, you know, I didn't originate this script, but I can really make this my own. Can we go back even further? Because I think what Arik and I are always trying to figure out is like, 
how do we level up as creators? How do we level up also into the system? And it's like, how did you get that manager? What was, what do you think were the dominoes that fell down that you pushed down and then you created that got you that, that rep? Yeah, absolutely. So I often say that I have an embarrassing amount of film school in my resume. You know, even in high school, I went to media arts high school, which was an amazing, like, you know, government funded arts high school. And I was already kind of like getting my training and just the basics of like final cut 60 millimeter film, you know, making, but then I went to Cal arts for undergrad and then I went to AFI for directing. So for definitely what got me onto my current trajectory of directing narrative films is AFI was a huge boost in as far as like, I made a thesis film that, you know, I couldn't have raised the money for on my own without being in the infrastructure of that program. So I made a thesis film that I feel like really did represent me, the kind of characters that I liked and the kind of aesthetic that I love to do. It was a it was a thesis film called Kimmy Kabuki, and it was about a housewife that follows her husband to a porn convention and then learns about intimacy from his favorite porn star. And, you know, it's not a thriller, it's not a genre film, but it really had like the character work that I loved. And again, like the themes of sexuality and, and the female perspective that, again, I just felt like it was very personal to me. And even that was like an unlikely female connection story. So I was, you know, lucky to walk away with thesis film that I felt like really represented me that I was really proud of. And that, you know, we had an AFI showcase for like the industry of like the thesis films that were made that year. And I was only three films actually screened at the showcase, which was like kind of like a messed up thing. But so I wasn't one of the films. Like I wasn't one of the ones that actually screened that day, but I had spoken with a manager that day that represented one of my friends. So that kind of casual encounter led me to be represented by him. And that was like my first rep that I got. And ultimately he's that, that particular rep is no longer my manager, but you know, that I'm still the same company with a different manager. So, (laughs) but yeah, as far as like actually getting to a place where I had enough, you know, on my on my own resume to even pitch for a Blumhouse feature was many, many years of, you know, from the moment I got that manager at, at grad school to the moment I pitched for Blumhouse was, yeah, probably, you know, to 2015 to 2021, right? And in between mm. that were years of financial instability. Like I had gone back to, you know, being a sushi hostess for a while. And even though I was making career strides, like, you know, I had signed with CAA and I had done, you know, a lot of d- diversity programs for television. And I had directed something for Sam Raimi for his Quibi show. Like amidst all the, like all those things had to happen and then, you know, eventually I had enough on my reel to for where my, you know, my manager could go to Blumhouse and be like, okay, she's directed this many things. She's done this many things over these many years. She has what it takes, you know, can she pitch for one of these features? And like, I noticed this whole time that you're doing short films, like were these short films that you were kind of doing on your own or were they jobs that you got hired on or a little bit of both? And like, how are you raising the budgets for these movies? Yeah. So amidst, you know, trying to get hired as a director, I was always trying to control my own creative output that no matter whether nobody was, you know, whether somebody was hiring me or not, that I was always making something. So early on, right after graduating from film school, I think probably one of the most important investments that I made is I took some of my like leftover student loans and bought myself 
like a GH4 and, you know, lavalier mics and a Zoom to make sure that even if I couldn't afford to make, you know, narrative shorts with a budget, I could actually be practicing storytelling through documentaries. So I had a pretty extensive documentary background anyways, but I kind of made sure that, you know, my personal narratives and brand could still continue to be created and I could keep outputting that without any money. So that's documentaries. But then my short films, yeah, I made a punk rock musical called Lexical Gap and I made I made another one called Basic Witch and Lexical Gap was just completely self-funded. You know, I, again, coming out of AFI was lucky enough to have collaborators that wanted to create with me. And like, so I had a producer and a DP and I that all kind of invested in making this short film together and continuing to create. So yeah, that was just like a few thousand dollars each and you know a little bit of help from kickstarter for post production after we had done production to just kind of yeah pay pay our post collaborators but yeah that was the one where we made after my thesis but then basic witch kind of my last short narrative film that actually we did get some produ- producing assistance from a commercial production company that I happened to intern for. <laughs> and then, but we be- like, built a relationship and like they're investing in doing more narrative work. And um, there was a great writer there, Lauren Sweeney, who was, uh... so she wrote that short film and I was a director. So they kind of, the company kind of invested in us to make a narrative sample with us. So that was one that I did not have to personally invest in, but it was still, you know, quite DIY. And we shot kind of in the, you know, the commercial production company's offices. And so, yeah, those were my two narrative shorts that I I did after school. And I mean, getting someone to fund your first feature is the dream. Like we talk about that on the show a lot. Like it is a dream. And I would say, and I think Ulrich might have said before, it's rare. You know, usually people will kind of bootstrap a micro budget project, maybe level their way up through different budget levels. And I'm hearing a lot of entrepreneurship from you. Did did you attempt a feature to self-fund a feature? I know you went through the the WIF financing intensive, uh, right? But please tell us a little bit about like the decision to go with a larger company for your first feature. Yeah, you know, I was trying so hard to make a no budget feature for years. Like, and yeah, so Liz, the first time I was exposed to your work and, you know, who you were was by following your like independent film making hustle and like the steps you took. And it really was just like a, a sample for me. And I was like, I wish I could do that. So there was many, many attempts. I had probably three different narrative scripts that I had written or co-written that, you know, were very low budget. And I had written to be very low budget and we could shoot with, you know, just our friends and our locations. And so I tried many times, like, you know, like $15,000 budgets, right? How can I make that happen? But something just kind of kept falling apart all the time. Like it was like either, you know, like that particular producing partner thought they had funds that they could utilize for a a low budget, but it kind of just kind of like dissipated or we lost momentum because of X, Y, and Z, or like we just never, I could just never get those no budget projects across the finish line. So my, I always thought I I would make a a $15,000 movie as my first feature. Like that was always the plan. And like the fact that, you know, we had Unseen for Blumhouse became my first 
feature is really a, a huge surprise to me and like a wonderful, amazing, fun privilege that I got to do. But it's not something that I could have planned for. It's not something that I chose even. Like, mm. it's just something that kind of somehow actually kind of came to me. Yeah, it's it's a real surprise. Yeah, I mean, well, let alone like, you know, you don't have to fund your first feature, but you actually get paid to make your first feature. <laughs> That's pretty wild. <laughs> it is wild. And again, like, if you asked me even, you know, a, two years ago, if that's how it was going to go. Like I would have been like, that sounds unlikely. <laughs> yeah. And I think what helped with that is that I got a footing in television. You know, I think when I got TV credits and I think that helped put me in this position to pitch for these directing jobs that are more like jobs. Well, here, I have two questions. I would, I'll, I'll pick one. Okay. So let's just, let's just go with the TV re- angle. So, you know, you had your, your, your manager, your reps, you're like, you're making your own short films. Like, how did the first TV job appear? Was it something that was brought to you? Did you meet somebody and you would kind of bring that to your managers? Like, what was the origin of that first opportunity in TV? So out of film school, again, you know, struggling financially, knowing what I, you know, really wanted to do was make these like personal film indie features, but, you know, really not knowing how to get there. I I just knew that I really wanted to pursue television because I I needed to diversify like the different ways I could direct, right? And I always loved television. It always seemed a little inaccessible to me just cuz it just seemed like such a behemoth to try to break into and I was I was like intimidated. But I, I whether it's Sundance Labs or Film Independent Labs or or these TV directing diversity programs, like I was always applying to everything. You know, like I wasn't like, oh, I only want to do indie stuff or I only want to do TV. I was just literally applying to any diversity program, like our artist support program that I could. Like every, it was just became like brushing my teeth, you know, like you take in all the rejections, but you just keep applying. And again, like I never got to kind of break into the indie labs at all, but somehow I kept, I did keep getting into the TV directing labs. And so I did the Fox directing program, the Warner Brothers directing program. I did the Ryan Murphy directing program. And those are all for television. And so my experience in shadowing TV shows through those initiatives put me into a position to eventually shadow on a show called Good Trouble. And Good Trouble is, is amazing because they weren't a studio, they weren't like a, a studio mandated diversity program. The showrunners of Good Trouble were like, we want to bring in shadows. We want to, you know, bring people into our show and support them who are, you know, you know, marginalized filmmakers. And so I was lucky enough to get to shadow on Good Trouble on an amazing uh, one of the sh- one of the uh, men who was a showrunner, Peter Page. And that was kind of like the one that was the important nugget for me eventually to break into TV because a year after I shadowed, they called me and they were like, we want to we want to book you for an episode. I want to talk a little bit about your relationship to genre because I'm hearing you know, the early shorts, you know, some of the topics you mentioned that you love exploring are, you know, female strong, well, not necessarily f- strong female characters. I hate that phrase, but female characters, sexuality. You talk a little bit about making personal films and then and then you have this like string in the genre world. And so was going Going into horror always the goal, or I guess just tell us a little bit about horror and your career goals. 
Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, like you said, I definitely started with kind of practicing what it was like to tell like more literally personal stories. So like grounded, you know, dramedies and dramas and honing in and what that looked like, again, to be emotionally authentic. But then again, I had this opportunity through my manager to pitch for that, you know, 50 States of Fright, which was a Quibi show with Sam Raimi. And I, when I pitched for that, it was the first time I realized like, oh, okay, the mandate here is something, you know, horror, something kind of larger than life in the Sam Raimi aesthetic and world. But how can I, how can I pitch for something like that while being still personal? So what, you know, we pitched a, a really wild story about, a, you know, the largest ball of twine in the world and like that being possessed and like eating children. But <laughs> what was the emotional character core, right? And I was like, oh, I kind of finally experienced this kind of formula of like, okay, larger than life genre story, but it's a mother daughter story and it's an Asian American mother daughter story in the Midwest. And so I think, whereas before I might've made that story in a, you know, an intimate drama, oh, I can tell the same story through like a crazy genre film. And doing that project made me kind of fall in love with that, like with that, with that combination, with that hybriding of personal narrative and like larger than life genre. So ever since that project, that's what, that's all I've wanted to do is like, again, still maintain the core of, you know, who I am personally and like make stories that could have been an indie drama, but put it into like a wilder context because I love spectacle, you know, and I love sparkles and I love blood. Like I want to do these big things. And um, so that's why, yeah, again, infusion of the personal into the, into the bigger world has become the thing I want to do. So I want to go back to, uh, you know, unseen and basically the, the road to getting hired on that job. Like, so, you know, you talked about, you did a pitch, but was it just one pitch was it multiple pitches? Did you, what kind of materials did you bring? Did you even have any materials? Like, I want to hear all those details of how that pitch process went. Yeah, absolutely. So like I mentioned, before I pitched for Unseen, I had actually already for pitched for a different project, a different one in the slate of the eight. And so for that very first one I pitched for, I received the script. They were like, we think you could be good for this. And I read it and I did, I, I loved it. And so I got, I like hardcore went into preparing the pitch. I think I made like a 50 something plus like deck where, you know, that talked about the, my personal connection to the narrative, what my main notes would be to, to, to infuse my perspective and, you know, whatever changes I thought would strengthen the story. Then I talked about, you know, who I thought these characters were, what they looked like. I talked about the cinematography, the production design, the specific, you know, horror elements and how I would execute them. I would talk about the wardrobe and what excited me about it. So I did a hardcore visual deck and got really into it. And the 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 pitch ultimately actually talking to the executives and stuff. I don't I didn't go through the deck like over Zoom or anything. I had pre-sent that to them. They reviewed it and then I, I just kind of reviewed what I had written and visually shown in that deck together and we discussed it like in, you know, and that was kind of the pitch as far as with the with the executives. And so then I got hired for that project. Like I got I got hired to direct that that particular story, 
but ultimately there were some, you know, some things that were completely kind of out of my range of knowledge as far as like, um, you know, because it was Blumhouse and Epics. And somewhere in that chain, they decided like this particular script they weren't going to make anymore. So I pitched for that one. It went away. But, you know, Blumhouse, Blumhouse was like, we still love you. Like we want you to, you know, we want to see if we can get you on one of these other scripts. So eventually Unseen came to me. So, but by that time they had seen how hardcore my pitch was before. So I think for Unseen, I didn't, I didn't make a deck as intense. I came in more with, but still I came in with, you know, like, this is what I love about the story. This is what I would, you know, infuse with the characters. This is what I would change. This is what I would do with the kind of cinematography. So I came in with all the same information, not as much the physical, you know, visual representations for it, for that particular one. And so... I did one, yeah, one, one phone, one Zoom call with, again, the executives who were in charge of that project. And then I think I had another call with the writers to kind of discuss, again, what they thought, what I thought, and to see kind of if we were meshing and we were kind of in the same world. I think after that, it was like, okay, we want you to do this one. Wow. Nice. Yeah. I mean, what's really remarkable about the way you know, the way you tell your narrative is that you you recognize that there have been re- rejections and failures, but they seem like footnotes. And like, that's such a healthy way of looking at the trajectory. And do you have any advice for other artists who may not have that ability to kind of bounce back so easily? Yeah, you know, I mean, I sometimes question my capacity to bounce back. Like when, when you're in the lowest moment, you know, when you get that rejection, I I definitely feel kind of like the, the being hit by a truck. Like I feel rejection pretty physically. Like I, I have to kind of take a few days off. I'm like, you know, now that I'm older, I can recognize that. And I'm like, oh, I know what this is. I'm just going to like lay on the couch for a day or two and I know it's going to pass and I'll be back on the, you know, back in the grind, back in the hustle. But yeah, especially when I was younger, I think, you know, that that physicality of what re- how hurt, rejection hurts, definitely, you know, I wasn't trained to know that that would go away yet. So I got to some places of being like, oh, maybe this is it. I should stop. I'm not making any progress. Like this is too hard of a lifestyle. So I definitely have had a lot of like, you know, crossroads moments where I was like, is, should I keep doing this? And, you know, like everybody has different backgrounds and, you know, different strengths and different educations. But for me, for me and my own background, what always, what I always came back to is how, how far I've already come on this path as a filmmaker, doing anything else would be starting over. In, in like the beginning of a path of something else, you know, like, cause I would actually play, I would do this thought experiment to myself when, when things got hard and I couldn't take the rejection anymore. And I just was like, can I have a comfortable life where I can pay rent without worrying in those <laughs> moments? I was like, okay, in my mind, I let myself quit. Right. Like in my, I'm not telling anybody else, but tonight I quit. I'm not a filmmaker anymore. This is the first day of the rest of my life. What am I going to do? And I just like let myself have that thought experiment. And I was like, okay, I like museums, but I want to work in a museum. I like theater, but I want to work in theater. Like, so I list off like all these other lives that I could be having. 
and actually like wrote a list of like, well, if I want to work in these different industries, what would I have to do? And ultimately what would be in front of me is a list of like going back to school or like starting as an intern or like just pretty pretty much like being like, okay, if I quit filmmaking, is life going to get easier? And the answer was always no. <laughs> so <laughs> I've already come this far in filmmaking. Like I'm, I'm more ahead here than in anything else. So it just kind of became like, I can't quit because this is the, this is what I've, there's nothing else for me. <laughs> That's amazing. It, it's it's almost like the George Costanza moment from Seinfeld where he's just like, quits his job. He's like, I could be a, a news guy. I could be this guy. But he doesn't actually, didn't actually list it out the way that you did, which is, <laughs> ma- yeah. ma- makes more sense. So I wanted to talk a little bit about all the programs that you did, all the, the, the TV writing programs and directing programs and, and whatnot. And, you know, I'm not, I've never gotten done any of these programs, but I've talked to a b- bunch of people who have, and they've been very successful from coming from these things. But, you know, I never really knew that, like, you would do so many. So I guess the question is, like, was that always kind of the plan? Like, when you're applying for these programs, that you would just do as many as humanly possible? Or was it something that you kind of learned, like, through doing the programs that you're like, oh, one program is great, but I should just do, keep on doing them because it'll just be better to do more. It was never a matter of like more is better. It was always a matter of like, oh, well, I guess that one didn't result in a job. I have to keep doing more. Because <laughs> again, all the diversity programs, they differ in their capacity to to make real world tangible changes in your life, you know, especially the earlier years. I think people were just kind of like trying to do their best and like trying to get people into the fold and trying to get people some experience. But ultimately, whether those led to jobs was like a very complicated thing. Because again, sometimes these programs are mandated by the studios, but the shows weren't interested in participating. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we'd get into these programs and then the shows wouldn't actually be supportive of like having us as shadows. So that's not productive, right? So like one, once I did that program, it was kind of like, well, that didn't result in anything tangible. I have to keep applying until something happens. And I definitely learned early because like what what was great about the shadowing experience and the TV program experience was, um again, the peers that you meet through the program, like everybody else who's also in your same position and is struggling with you. And some people are, you know, just starting or some people are very experienced in shadowing. When I was just shadow starting shadowing, I had met a director who had shadowed 10 times and still hadn't booked their first episode of television. And I was like, oh my goodness. So meeting that person made me kind of set myself up for an endurance like marathon. Like, okay, nothing's guaranteed. I might have to shadow for years before I break into TV. But, you know, some people, they do one shadowing program and then they book something. So like everything else in filmmaking, it's you never know. And so I just kept doing it until something actually changed in my life. Not to ping pong you, but going back to Unseen, I'm thinking about, you know, I recently came over to the genre world just in the past couple of years. And like the onboarding for me has been like, oh, there's a different aesthetic and like there's a different, you know, different kind of visual design to the in different pace. There's like a whole different kind of world of formal language that horror uses. And then also, you know, Unseen has some action, has some stunts. Can you talk a little bit about, I, I don't know, is that 
Is that exciting? Is that intimidating? What is the onboarding experience of being brought into the new genre elements for you? Yeah, I I was definitely a consumer of genre, again, just like growing up, right? Like just kind of passively. And I was a fan of, you know, the female movies like The Thing or even, you know, in TV shows like, you know, things like The X-Files that had that kind of that tension and and the the jump scares and the monsters. But as far as, yeah, like studying the filmmaking of, of, of horror or thriller was newer to me because again at AFI my my foundation was again like how not the craft of scaring people but the craft of like how do I tell an emotional character-based story but it's been a really really exciting fun thing again kind of like in this portion of my career to to digest horror and thriller and to it with the intention to understand the aesthetic and understand like what the craftsmanship of it is more and it all I call myself genre fluid because I go to story first and then I think what's the best genre what's the best aesthetic what's the best like way to tell this particular story so again when I was hired on to do 50 states of fright I just watched you know I watched everything Sam Raimi right like I had seen Evil Dead I had seen a few of it but I'm like now I'm gonna study it like I'm in film school because I want to be able to translate his his lens but then like you know speak utilize it for my story and so yeah I kind of studied that that kind of horror for that particular project and but for Unseen I was like okay when I read these antagonists, especially the antagonists, I was like, okay, they're they're larger than life. I want to make a movie that's so fast paced and fun and kind of audacious that the larger than life villains don't feel out of like, don't feel like they're they're placed in the wrong movie. You know, like the whole movie has to be larger than life so that these villains don't just seem like campy arch people that were like put into like a grounded horror film. I was like, I'm, the whole movie has to be bigger and colorful and just kind of like able to carry that tonal the tone of character so you know i i definitely grew up loving quentin tarantino already like i was already a fan of that again like kill bill and stuff but i it was the first time i kind of went back and again like studied what 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 really that was like from like a a lens perspective from a camera perspective even films like like boondock saints that that's one where i watched for like because and so funny like a lot of the films that i admire stylistically are actually very like male perspectives and like very uh, sometimes even just straight up misogynistic but you know i like to just kind of educate myself of the tools they utilized for their objectives and then like you know adapt that for my my purposes and so yeah i kind of feel like every project i've done I've studied the subgenre that I want to kind of infuse into that particular project and as I go. And I think it's actually really fun because I always loved film school and I love structure in school. So like I like giving myself like a little curriculum and being like, you know, how do I how do I internalize this in order to utilize it as a director for my my story? So I want to hear a little bit about the pre-production for Unseen and like how that process went. Like, did you basically have full reign to like do your own casting and like hire your own crew or were you assigned certain people like how did that all happen or were you pushed sort towards certain actors who are like had bigger names or 
was it already kind of all set with the budget and the release that's that stuff didn't matter and you could just do what you wanted so on scene was one feature out of a slate of eight right, right. so that blumhouse and epics now mgm were already going to make they were committed to making eight movies and it was like blumhouse's job to find these scripts and decide what the next movie was going to be and get like epics's approval so within that kind of already preset structure it the shooting process was more like television so they had the same crew pretty much the entire time for all eight wow. movies and so and the movie just kept changing but the crew <laughs> the same wow sounds intense <laughs> yeah oh, for the crew totally intense yeah i mean my god <laughs> yeah. and so like so, sometimes you know depending on who was available like the ad might change the dp might change and the director was that something that always changed wow. so yeah it was kind of treated like a tv show in a production logistical standpoint so and so as so speaking of that i came in and pretty much all the roles were already, you know, like people were hired for them. They assigned me a DP, they assigned me an AD. And there was only two roles where they were like, we don't have somebody assigned for you. These are two positions that you can try to, if you would like, you can see if we can approve your people. And so those two positions were the editor and the composer. And so for the editor, I brought on Liz and I's mutual friend, Michael Block. He went to AFI with me. He edited my thesis film. He edited many of my short films as well. So he's a long-term collaborator. So stoked. I was able to get him in and they kind of made him go through the, you know, like the the ringer to like get that position. Like they wow. called his references, you know, they had multiple interviews with him to make sure he was like ready to be in that world. But my producer, Alex, actually said to me, well, the hardest thing to do is try to get anybody to say a bad thing about Michael Block. So I guess he's hired. <laughs> <laughs> and he really was so perfect for this project. But, and then my composer I brought was able to bring on Tangeline Bolton, who composed for my short film, Basic Witch, and who composed also for my documentary film. So she was somebody that I had already worked with already. And like, she's a, you know, an amazing composer that uh, I just was like, I want to bring her along for my whole career. So again, so, so lucky that I got to bring her on as well. But those were the only two positions I was able to to hire. Everybody else was already on the project, but I can tell, I can say that like, I loved everybody. Like they had a really good crew, you know, everybody in every department, I was really thrilled to work with. But the casting process, that was a whole different thing. If you want me to keep talking about that. Yes, uh, yes. yes, yes, yes. Yes. <laughs> so specifically with the character, Emily, even during, at the pitch point, I was like, you know, you know, she was already a, an ER doctor in the script, but there was no ethnicities like specified in the script. And so I was like, you know, I would really love there's so many Asian Americans in the medical field. Like, I really love to honor that by giving this 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 particular character that specificity. And, you know, so that that get led to a few character changes and things. So that specific casting directive was starting to happen even in like the script, you know, stage. And then with Jolene Purdy's role, Sam, I, from the very beginning, like when I read the script, I was like, I want Jolene Purdy. I, I had seen her in White Lotus season one and I just like fell in love oh, with man. her. And I was like, she's the one, she's the one. And so she was <laughs> my awesome. mom. Yeah. And, you know, we we auditioned other people again in case Jolene wasn't available or, you know, so we auditioned many, many people, many amazing people. We had so many great options. Ultimately, we, we you know, we got Midori and we got Jolene for the lead roles. And, and they both, again, like happened to be Asian American women, Japanese American women, both of them. And everybody was supportive of that. Everybody was like, they're great. That's, they have good chemistry. This is great. 
great. But then like the, there was some like conversations around like, oh, do we know how to market this movie with these two people as the the leads? Like there were some conversations about like, oh, does the antagonist have to be a stunt casting, you know, with the, with the male antagonist, do we have to get somebody who's, you know, more famous mm. as a white guy? And uh, so again, even with this um, project, there's definitely conversations like that. You know, it's not about like the sellability of, you know, theater tickets, you know, it's not about getting stars in order to do that. But again, even in this scale for a streaming film, that conversation was being had. And ultimately though, what, what was really a, wonderful solution to all this this conversation was like oh you know what we should we should get somebody really cool for the role of carol <laughs> like let's stunt cast carol and uh, we were able to get missy pile and like that was just like the most i don't know heartwarming incredible she's she's like unhinged in the best way as, as the character no missy pile is like a wonderful goddess in person but she brought the unhinged <laughs> to that character and i'm um, so yeah that conversation and casting those were very interesting things to uh, for me to walk into as a director nice i think it's time for us to go to our final six Auric, are you prepared for us to make that transition to the other side no i'm not not yet i want <laughs> one more question one more question <laughs> so I feel like after you've you've done all these amazing things, all the TV directing, this this movie that's just about to come out that you know is, looks incredible with all this amazing cast. Like, what have been your big tech takeaways as a director, especially from Unseen? Like, what are things that you know now that you didn't know before making this movie that you're going to take on to whatever comes next? You know, the main thing I feel like I learned by doing Unseen is that it, it affirmed that my personal tastes and style and aesthetic and priorities as a person and as a director is a strength and not a weakness because I think coming up I maybe it was just like internalized misogyny but I was like you know I always wondered like oh am I too feminine do I like you know do I like colors too much do I need to be more serious like how am am I not the right kind of person to be able to find success as a director as a leader so I think earlier in my career especially like you know the first kind of episodes of tv like you know I dressed in all black you know like I I, I kind of muted my own aesthetic just personally to make sure that you know people didn't look down at me and just like make assumptions about me but I learned as I went and then again unseen was the first time like unseen I literally kind of you know put it, it's pink and green you know like the whole aesthetic of it is is who I am like it just embodies me so in so many ways it really affirmed for me that my success is really going to come from me embracing who I am and that just sounds so like general for me to say and like something that is, I don't know, maybe if I heard that five years ago, I would have been like, what do you, what does that even mean? But like, I literally, literally putting myself in the movie emotionally, aesthetically, stylistically, even if I have like voices in my head being like, you know, the world doesn't want this, the world, you know, this is risky. It's not like the world doesn't want to hear these stories or see movies like this. Like, unseen the experience of it taught me that those insecurities aren't true that i was able to make mm. this movie more special because i was i embraced myself and i think what i was lucky for this movie that i had a supportive environment for that like the executives at blumhouse like they were all very much like we see who you are what you want to do and we want you to do it right and so that's a privilege that i got to have where i had all that support to be myself and it was, you know, embraced by all departments and everybody thought it was so fun and exciting. 
Whereas, you know, if I had an environment or a job that told me, like, we don't like any of that stuff, we we want we want to push you against you to do that, then it would have been a whole different thing. But again, like, I had the privilege of having a positive experience that only affirmed that my my own style as a director is a strength, not a weakness. Oh, that's amazing. That's wonderful. Jumping to our next kind of like James Lipton-like questions. What's the first film you ever made? And really, you should define that however you want to. It could be back in high school, whatever it is. The first film you ever made and how do you feel it uh, feel about it now? The first film I ever made. Okay, so I took a lot of, you know, I took a lot of video, like even in like, you know, middle school, elementary school. But I'm going to consider my first film as the first film I got to actually digitally edit. You know, like the first time I got on a Mac computer and got onto iMovie and cut clips together, which was at the Walker Arts Center in Minneapolis's arts program for middle schoolers, where I, again, got the, got access to a video camera and a, and a Mac for the first time in my life. And I interviewed my best friend, Anna. I filled my best friend, Anna, interviewing a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> put that together to and then ended with the the yellow submarine by the beatles and that was my first movie it was called like davy the toilet and how do i feel about it now i feel great about it i love that movie i'm very proud of it i look we look so cute in it we were literally i think 13 years old so we've come so far but you know, I'll, I'll, I peaked. I peaked with that movie. So, <laughs> what's the best filmmaking advice that you've ever received? Best filmmaking advice I've ever seen. Is it cheating? Two comes to mind, but they like no. they're related to each other. Okay. The one that comes to mind about the actual craft of directing, you know what? No, I, I, I'm going to give a simple, simpler answer. So the, the advice that I was given about directing and filmmaking that really has, I feel like allowed me to get to where I am is a really simple one, which is like collect your nose so you can get to your yes, which I think, mm. you know, Sure, we've uh, I've heard from a lot of different places and I actually don't even know where it came from, but it's the only way to get through the insecurities and have the kind of longevity that you need, the kind of um, endurance that you need to get to your successes. Because there's no success without failure. And again, all the submissions I made to Sundance Labs and, and diversity programs I didn't get into for years, like making the collection of the no, the actual objective was very, very, very helpful for me. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received or or just witnessed? Worst filmmaking advice I've witnessed? I feel like maybe I've forgotten the bad advice. I don't know. I mean, have I witnessed or not? This isn't advice, but I definitely learned that when people say like actors are divas or like these are there's this, these are difficult actors, like, you know, I think the the common thing might be to believe that and to be like, oh, I don't want to work with them. But I learned that listening to that kind of insight about people may not be a very productive way to evaluate uh, actors. Because um, I find that sometimes that when people call actors difficult, they actually just care. <laughs> and they're actually just speaking up for, you know, their craft and them then being able to do their jobs. And they're just advocating for their own, again, capacity to, to, to do their best. So again, I don't know if that's, that, that's kind of like, I guess the, the bad advice was, you know, don't work with divas. 
and but but if you actually look beyond that bad advice you know you can find that divas are just people who have opinions and want to do a good job yeah and it's all contextual too right like it could have been a bad day it could have been a bad interaction it could have there could have been another side of the story that you're not hearing is like all these other things that you know could be involved that you don't know so yeah don't judge like, don't judge a book by its cover or whatever they say, too, right? Don't judge an actor by their reputation. <laughs> because you just don't know, like, who that, rep- you know, who that opinion came from, when it came from, how it came, you know, they, you know, they're, everybody's human and you just never know. Right. Do you have a goal as a filmmaker? Oh, my gosh. I have so many goals as a filmmaker. But my next goal, again, is like a theatrical feature film that I direct. I don't necessarily have to have written it, but I would love to have originated the story. I would love to also direct something I write. That's my next goal. I have lofty, you know, you know, very, you know, in the clouds kind of stuff, too. Like, I would love to direct like a super villain prequel, like studio film. Oh, the big stuff, you know, like I'd love to take a, a villain like Ursula or Poison Ivy and like make their prequel story. Mm. Again, they're just they're these, especially these female villains of like, again, such glamour to them, but also darkness. And I think that intersection is like what I love. So yeah, the theatrical films is definitely a big goal and, you know, different, different levels to that. Nice. Yeah. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you would give yourself? Oh, man. I could go back in time. Piece of advice. It's funny. It's like, which which time am I going back to, you know? <laughs> if I were able to go back in time, the advice I would give myself is, if you don't take care of your health, you're not going to be able to make movies. Mm. You can convince yourself that like, I have to work so hard. I have to work so hard. I have to work so I can't sleep. I can't sleep. I can't do anything because I have to work hard to make make it in movies. I would tell that girl to slow down and take care of your body and prioritize health or else you truly won't be able to make movies at all anymore. You won't be able to 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 work hard if you just run yourself ragged. And the sooner she that girl learns that, the sooner like life is going to be a little bit more tolerable and like start to be fun again. Last question. Is making movies hard? Making movies is very hard. I talk about this all the time that like no matter how like bad a movie is, it was still hard to make like no matter how much it might get, you know, criticized or or pe- torn apart. It's like, man, even that movie was so hard to make. And I honor every movie that's made no matter what, because they're hard to make. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you are wonderful. Um, what do you want to encourage people do, to do? I assume it is to watch this film and how should they best do it to support you? Yes. Unseen comes out on March 7th for VOD. So that's going to be like Amazon Prime and Apple TV. And then it's going to be streaming on MGM Plus starting in May. But yeah, I also you know try to make like educational film TikToks. So I'm out there in the TikTok land under director Yoko. I'm on Instagram for, for with For Yoko. And I'm, you know, because again, like I like to say that I am over film schooled and I'd like to just share that knowledge that I, I paid a lot of money for and I'm in a lot of debt with. I'd like to like pay that information forward. So whenever I can have time, I, <laughs> I try to make content that's free for people, you know, so that they don't have to pay, pay for the information like I had to. <laughs> 
Do you love making movies as hard and you want to listen to more episodes? Jump over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash MMIH and you can listen to the entire back catalog of episodes for just $1.99 a month. That's an additional 300 episodes that aren't on iTunes that you can listen to whenever you please. But without any more blibber blabber, back to the show. Ulrich, what do you remember about our chat with Yoko? I remember that Yoko was a really organized person, I think, like creatively, you know, like she seemed like she really knew what she wanted, you know, Mm -hmm. and she had like a real focus on her craft. I, I can't stop but think about all she talked about with AFI and her experience there and like how I feel that like her experience at AFI like directly led to her to the you know circumstances that led to her making her first feature as a paid job through a big company like Blumhouse and MGM which i guess when she signed on it wasn't MGM but then it became MGM later but anyways it's like that's a big deal that's like a huge deal to have your first movie be at that level and i feel like you know it really got me thinking a lot about like you know why like how how she was able to pull that off and it's like well i guess that's one of the reasons why you you if you get into afi you better go you know or any school like that because like it just kind of opens up those doors and those opportunities and those connections and you know it looks like she made the most out of her time at afi and really really utilized that experience to like really help her career you know really launch in a big way you know a hundred percent i also there were like two things about the interview that i really glommed onto, and one was her talking about dealing with failure i just thought that was a really nice vulnerable moment and then also being someone who's new to genre like me i'm new to genre relatively and having made a lot of personal work in the past I think she and I are cut from the same cloth of like, and probably every genre director, but for some reason, the way she phrased it really grew on me that, you know, she took her personal films and just integrated them into genre. And it, it you don't have to lose that, right? And I think sometimes you think about genre filmmaking and you think like, oh, well, you follow this formula and you make sure you have these tropes and these scares and, and it's that's just the shell and ultimately the soul has to be there and she described the soul of her films in in a a really lovely inspiring way so i was grateful for for that part of the conversation yeah it was a very concise description of like what every genre filmmaker attempts to do for the most part i think unless i mean i don't know who knows i don't know what these these uh, director video action people are thinking But yeah, I mean, I feel like, oh, burn. Yeah, I mean, having watched some of those, I'm like, hmm, it doesn't seem to always be a soul in some of those movies. No, I agree. I'm not, I'm ooling them because they're no good. You can make fun of them all you want. I'm I'm bored. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you think about it, like, like the prime example of like everywhere, everything everywhere all at once, you know, like (gasps) that is like the perfect like marriage of like a movie with a ton of soul and feeling and character and personality with like the best genre, you know, rapping and like, you know, filmmaking you could imagine. So it's like, I want it to win everything. Yeah, me too. I'm so excited. Like, I can't even believe it's nominated for so much stuff. It's like a a movie I love and like, I think is the greatest. But usually when I think that about a movie, like the world tells me that I'm wrong. Yeah. Yeah. But not this time. So yay. All right, Liz, I'm ready. Like, it's time for the game. The game! <laughs> just, like, sounds like a moose when Yours I is it. better. I like yours. No. <laughs> it's fun. <laughs> Sorry. So this, uh, the game, for those who are unaware or uninitiated, it is really just our producer, Eric Toms, 
giving us a question for me to ask Ulrich that he's never heard before. He's not prepared for in any way. He's going to hear it cold. And it's just about an indie film, a hypothetical indie film production. So we'll go with this one. And this actually, this didn't come from Eric. This came from a wonderful listener of the show, Colin Stryker. So here we go. You are directing a low-budget, independent feature, a passion project, a heavy character-based drama that you also wrote. Due to scheduling constraints, you have not had much time to rehearse with your actors. But you and your DP are very much on the same page, so you've been able to focus most of your attention on working with your actors during the shoot, and it has gone well. But you are in the middle of your tightly scheduled shoot when you get COVID. You feel like crap, Mm. and it seems likely you will be hit by it for several days. You can assume that due to cast and crew availability, rescheduling is simply not an option. Do you try to direct remotely, even though you won't be at your best? B, have your AD step in and direct your actors until you recover and test negative. C, cancel your shoots until you recover and test negative, pushing everything till the end. This will trigger lots of overtime and likely will require SAG contract violations, but you think you think your casting crew would do it. D, spend $1,000 on sophisticated medical PPE and direct live powering through. E, other. What do you do, director? What do you do? Yeah, so this actually happened to a mutual friend of ours, a previous guest of the show, show Mitch Altieri. He got COVID Aww. in the middle of his last movie, and they just they broke for however they needed. It was like him and the DP both got it. And so I think they took 10 days oh. and like kind of quarantined and just like stopped everything. And then their producer figured it out, rescheduled it, and then they kept on shooting the movie. Wow. And so it extended everything. You know, they basically added another like, yeah, you know, big portion to like the time when they're away from their families and everything. They probably had to pay like a certain amount of kill fees and time and whatever. But they did it and it worked out and the movie's great. I just, you know, finished working on it and everything. And so... I kind of feel like that is really, in this day and age, like the only acceptable thing to do is just to stop everything. I don't really feel like even if you're on an indie movie, it's like, oh, you're scrappy, whatever. Like, I don't think that you should be bending this rule, you know, because it's just for everyone's safety and everyone, you know, it's just not a cool thing to do to like ask your crew to put up with that, you know. And you're probably already doing all the PPE stuff anyways because you have to. So, like, I don't think... Like if you if you actually get COVID, like there's no acceptable like let me get more PPE and still show up. It's like no, you can't do that. You got to get out of here. You know. Well, but remember like Jenna Ortega that they said that she had COVID when she was doing Wednesday. Oh, I didn't and they like know. knew she had COVID and that. Oh, really? So that, sorry to interrupt you, but it's like you're acting like it's uncalled for. And I agree it's unca- like it's shocking. It would be a breach of like health and safety violations. But like it happens all the time. Like I yeah, think that yeah. that actors and directors do go on set with COVID and then they just stay away from people and get like extra precautions. But anyway, that's a personal question, I guess. I just don't think that that's like, I don't know. Like, So I had an incident, well, it wasn't me personally, but at my company where a director got COVID and like basically like like said he was clean and said that he didn't have COVID, but then like showed up to the, the scout, like clearly sick and then like immediately tested for COVID and it was like, and the crew was hella pissed, like, like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, like, why is this guy allowed to show up? He's clearly sick. 
like, why are we doing this scout with him? This is like putting us all at risk because this guy thinks that he can just power through. Like he clearly is not feeling well. And then of course he immediately tested for COVID that at the end of that day. And he was positive, you know, and then they had to replace him for the shoot and they got like another director to come in, but the crew was like fucking pissed. And I think some people might've walked maybe, Maybe somebody walked. I don't really remember, but like it was, it was a big deal, and the and the producer was like yeah. super unhappy and pissed off about the whole thing, and she felt like it really made us look bad as a production company and her look bad as a producer, and it was just like this huge thing, and like if you're asking all these people to work on your movie, and like even if you're gonna be able to pay people on an indie movie, it's still a favor to work on an indie movie because it's so much less than the rate you would get doing anything else. So, like, I would never do that to my crew. Like, I would never put them in a situation where I'm, like, putting myself above them and, like, risking their health, you know, for the sake of my art. Like, fuck that, you know? So, like, I just don't think that I would put them in that position or, or want to put them to put them in that position, you know? Mm, um, of course, so of I, course. I, I think I would go... I would go with the the, the, the po- postponing option. Like, I, I don't think, like... like yeah, like he said, like you, the COVID case is bad, right? Like it's not like it's not like one of those things where it's like, oh, you you you're you test positive, but you're asymptomatic. Like I would actually be. Yeah, sick. you have symptoms, and he did kind of say you wouldn't be at your best. So those are the kind of clues yeah. you get, right? Oh, I wouldn't want to direct remotely if I'm at, if I'm not at my best. Like when I, had I would COVID before, I would really, yeah. That's I would choose the remote directing option, and I would send in Sean as like. My body, he'd be my my in-person body on set. (laughs) And then I would be there on an iPad watching everything. Like I would I would create some sort of remote setup because remember who is that lovely Italian director that we interviewed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cecilia. Cecilia. uh, Yeah. Minucci. Yeah. Minucci, yes. She directed remotely, you know, she directed. Right. And and there were a bunch of she wasn't but she wasn't sick, though. I feel like yeah. being sick is is part of the reason, you know. But I I do think adrenaline kicks in, and yes, you're gonna. Ex- I mean, it's not a good idea. Like I agree, you're gonna compromise your health. You're gonna make things worse. But I just don't. If there's a world to extend the shoot and to come in later, of course, I think that's the preference. But my instinct is like that that has too many variables, right? So like mm-hmm. my default option is like I'll stay home. I will be sick. I will direct remotely. Hopefully, I will have already shot listed and storyboarded with my DP. I can go over daily with, you know, with all of them. They can send me rushes home so I can watch them. Like, I think there is a way in this day and age to do virtual production. If you if you direct remotely, like, they probably are going to have the setup where you could, like, actually watch the feed from the camera, you know, yeah. on your setup. Yeah. So you probably wouldn't actually be missing takes themselves. You would just be, like... Not being able to give the 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 the, the talent proper direction because like I never get to do that anyway. I never have enough time. <laughs> and like I think it would be like, can I set up a call with each of the actors once a day where we would have one on one conversations? That would be more than I would normally get on a set. You know what I mean? Mm. Like it, I I I agree that your answer is probably the best in the sense of like the creator, the the actor needs to be there in person at their best, really guiding everything. But I would be okay with virtual production. I would, I'd actually yeah. think I would love that. <laughs> I, would, I would do the virtual thing if I wasn't sick, you know, or I wasn't ever sick enough. But yeah, I think that would be, you know, I think that would be it, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
But if, but yeah, but I mean, if I was too sick, then I would want to just postpone it. Cause like when I got COVID, it was really terrible and uh, I couldn't do anything and I was like in hell. So if it was like that, I would definitely not be able to direct anything. I would just be like I, sleeping. I don't know. I honestly think that we power th- it, that again, you'd be compromising your health. So it's not that great. <laughs> but I do think that we power through in extreme circumstances and we can figure it out. And if you're lying there, if you're taking, what's the horse tranquilizer thing that everyone took? Paxlovid. If you take, I mean, Sean took Paxlovid and he, it really did help him. Wow. I think you don't go on set though. You don't compromise everyone else's health, no matter what. It sounds like we're on the same page about that. Well, that we can agree about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for the question, Colin. That was great. Another good one. Colin is like just firing off the great questions over here. I really appreciate Colin's input. But yeah, I think that's all we have to talk about. So let's end the show. You know, if you have a a suggestion for a question for the game, you can email those directly to Eric. But I guess I don't really want to give Eric's email out. So you could just, (laughs) for the time being, just send those to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com. We'll get them over to Eric. Or if you have a question, email us and let us know and then we'll put you in touch with Eric. That's the best way to do it. So like, let us know if you want to, you know, contribute to the game like Colin does and we'll get you hooked up, get you all set up with that. Or if you just have a simple question, a comment or suggestion, you can also send those to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com or if you really, really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. Also, make sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Making Movies Hard Podcast. Make sure to check out the International Screenwriters Association, the ISA. They're an organization designed to connect with writers with filmmakers through a number of programs they offer including publishing your, your log line to a network of industry professionals amongst many many other things so go over to www.networkisa.org to sign up for free today thanks so much to Yoko Okamura for coming on the show thanks to our editor Jeff Reimut for doing the editing and thanks to our producer Eric Toms for just simply being awesome thanks to you all for listening and we'll talk to y'all next week And roll in. I didn't see your face. I didn't have your face up. I gotta see your face. Makes the conversation so much more fun. Can I actually see each other? Yeah. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty <laughs> presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.